Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family in the unity that you've provided from eternity past, Father, especially for this day as we fellowship in your Son's good name. Thank you for the privilege of doing so, Father. We're so grateful for your grace, your mercy, and, of course, your love. It was love that motivated you sending your only begotten Son so that we might fellowship this way, rejoice the way we're able to this morning, and the way we will be able to this afternoon. Father, we pray for those that are not able to be with us this morning. We just want them to know that we're with them in spirit and that we pray to you that you bring them and return them back to the fold as soon as possible. Your will be done, of course. We pray also, Father, for those that are still lost in this world and on a day like today when we publicly baptize individuals, maybe... Maybe these individuals are humbled. Maybe they see something and are changed in a way that eventually we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to do that good labor to your glory. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt, to make a morning like this a reality for all of us. We just pray for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 22, we're in the midst of a very uh, edifying series called The, Con or the Lord is Our Confidence. Um, we began on Thursday with the following summary point from the week prior up here on the board, passive learning and lazy thinkers. If you haven't been uh, in touch with the curriculum, uh, that's what we have a website for. Um, we're on part 22, so some of this, um, for some of you, might not make complete sense. But um, in any case, passive learning and lazy thinkers. A person who doesn't see the need to be challenged by the truth is a person who thinks they already know everything. That's very dangerous ground uh, to be in. Again, a person who doesn't see the need to be challenged. Remember about uh, a couple of weeks back now, uh, the idea of being challenged from the pulpit, that uh, grace is a wonderful thing from God, but nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that grace translates directly into easy by man's standards or by using the filter of man's sensibilities. Uh, nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Even when Jesus said, uh, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, it was a relative statement. It was a statement regarding uh, the backdrop of human exhaustion, individuals trying to uh, do good by God or live up to some uh, worldly standard by uh, fleshly means. And so back to this point on challenging, being challenged, uh, it's a very good thing. A person who doesn't see that need, though, to be challenged by the truth is a person who thinks they already know everything. Romans 12, 3, 1 Corinthians 3, 18, and Galatians 6, 3. It's funny because I'm back there reviewing my message, and every time I see this point in my notes, I'm like, duh. 
It's just a duh, duh, right? A person who, but here's the thing. The spirit has kept me or has it, has this point in my notes and has kept it there all week. So it might be one of those, you know, duh moments, but yet here we are again. So some of you are either really slow. You can laugh. Oh, oh, it's not funny when it's not me. I get you. It's only funny when it's me. Or there's something really to this thing, something fundamental, which is really important for all of us to consider. Up here on the board, Romans 12:3 in the Amplified, For by the grace of God given to me, I say to every one of you not to think more highly of himself and of his importance and ability than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has apportioned to each a degree of faith and a purpose designed for service. The second reference up here on the board is 1 Corinthians 3.18, and I'm giving you the Amplified because uh, we've already looked at this in the New American. Let no one deceive himself. That came up a few times in our previous series, 75 parts on the deceitfulness of sin. Let no one deceive himself. We're experts at deceiving ourselves. Uh, justifying ungodliness, justifying fleshly motivation even. And the Bible says dogmatically, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, discarding his worldly pretensions and acknowledging his lack of wisdom. That's our starting point, in other words. We have to go down to the baseline of humility we have to understand that we're nothing without Christ, that we don't bring anything to the table. That's what Paul said. I consider it all rubbish. And I was at the very top of the heap, and I consider it rubbish, all lost to know Christ, which is why at the end of the day, all he ever wanted to know was Christ and him crucified uh, with whatever, whatever audience he ha happened to be keeping. Again, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, discarding his worldly pretensions and acknowledging his lack of wisdom so that he may become truly wise. And again, finally, Galatians 6, 3 in the Amplified, for if anyone thinks he is something special when in fact he is nothing special except in his own eyes, he deceives himself. Any questions? Again, our principal up here on the board Passive learning and lazy thinkers. A person who doesn't see the need to be challenged by the truth is a person who thinks they already know everything. And we just saw in Holy Scripture, that's very dangerous ground. It's arrogance. Often the easiest way to discern if someone's struggling with this malady on the board is if they speak more than they listen. If they speak more than they listen... I can't help but think of uh, millennials nowadays who, if they're not talking, aren't really listening. You ever spend any time with a millennial? Sorry, Andrea. Andrea's, I think, the only millennial. Well, let's see. Let me look around here. Don, definitely not you. <laughs> Don's like, no. That was like 30 years ago, Don. But this, this culture that we live in, the predominant culture, um, and let's face it, we're the parents of those kids. So let's not point fingers and go, oh, yeah, they're so terrible. Well, we raised them. 
So I think about the millennials. If they're not talking, they really aren't listening. A lot of them will be on their phones. Um, I'm pretty sure they hardly even listen to each other. It's a funny dynamic to watch. You get like 10 of them together, they're all just sort of yakking at each other, but no one's really listening. As soon as the next person starts speaking, the rest of them are on their phones. Yep, yep. Oh, look at that phone! It's diarrhea of the mouth. And then when they're done, they're back. That's the culture. It's the weirdest thing. So no one's really listening, but everybody's talking. Here's some biblical counsel to them and the rest of you who struggle with listening more than speaking up here on the board. On the grand scale of things, it's much better to be a good listener than a good speaker. Much better to be a good listener than a good speaker. Proverbs 10, 17-21, and James 1, 19-20. A person who listens more than they speak is a person who trusts in the Word of God. So let's investigate this. Go to Proverbs 10, verse 17. Proverbs 10, 17, again, the principle on the board is that on the grand scale of things, it's much better to be a good listener than a good speaker. That doesn't seem to fit today's American culture, though. That's part of the problem. That's why we really get, it's really hard to get people to sit down and listen to a message like this. You want me to sit there for a whole hour and listen to a bald guy talk? Yeah, because he's gifted by God to do that good thing to your benefit by grace. So just zip your mouth and listen for a moment. You might learn something. You might actually benefit instead of throwing up all over everybody else all the time. Proverbs 10, 17. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction. I just gave you some instruction, did I not? There you go. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction. But he who ignores reproof goes astray. He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Any questions? When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. In other words, if you just have diarrhea of the mouth all day long, eventually you're going to say something ungodly. There's no time for you to actually learn anything because you're too busy listening to yourself speak. That's unwise. Again, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is his choice silver. <clears throat> Excuse me. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. Again, the principle on the board is on the grand scale of things, it's much better to be a good listener than a good speaker. Go to Proverbs 17, 28. Proverbs 17, verse 28. Proverbs 17, verse 28. <clears throat> Even a fool, when he keeps silent, 
is considered wise. When, his, when he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Hmm. How about 18.2, Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. <laughs> kind of like what I just described. I'm not interested in any wisdom from anywhere else. I just want to, you know, throw my words everywhere. I just want to sort of vomit all over everyone with my self-righteous or perceived wisdom. And what did we learn at the beginning of the class? Anyone who thinks that way is deceived. Again, verse 2, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. And in the final reference, I'll do the work for you up here on the board in the Amplified, James 1, 19 to 20. Understand this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let everyone be quick to hear, be a careful, thoughtful listener, slow to speak, a speaker of carefully chosen words, and slow to anger, patient, reflective, forgiving, for the resentful, deep-seated anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, that standard of behavior which he requires from us. Again, the emphasis there, let everyone be quick to hear, be careful, thoughtful listener. Listen to what people have to say. Slow to speak, a speaker of carefully chosen words. Again, the point we're developing up here on the board, on the grand scale of things, it's much better to be a good listener than a good speaker. That's just wisdom from the Bible. It's just godly wisdom. So take it, uh, take it for what it is at face value. All right. So speaking of challenges, since that's how we kind of started this morning, let's make a challenge of this now. Again, since challenges have been at the forefront of our messages as of late, most of us, most of us here will say that we love and trust God. Is that a fair assumption? Most of you are like, yeah, I love God. I trust God. Most of us will say that. Most of it, it comes, it actually rolls off the tongue pretty well, pretty easy, doesn't it? I love and trust God. You know, it almost feels right, doesn't it? It almost seems blasphemous to say otherwise. But is it really an absolute truth? Is it really an absolute truth? I mean, you guys are the one who said it. I just put it out there. See how I, see what I did to you? Hmm? See how I did that? I got you all to say it. Now comes the challenge. So you said it. There's no getting out. Well, wait a minute. I, I just there was a little asterisk there. I was a little, you know, I just a little disclaimer. No, don't be lawyering. You said it. You meant it. Now let's see what the Spirit has to say on this topic. Is it really an absolute truth? Are our words filled with the truth? Would the Spirit agree with us if He were to speak openly right now on the subject? So let's consider our proclamations of love and trust for a moment up here on the board. 
This came out this past week. I truncated it a little bit for the sake of this morning's message. Say what you mean, mean what you say. For words to have meaning, they must be true. So you say, I love and trust the Lord. Well, for that to have real meaning, those words you just stated must be true. So if you say, for example, if you say you love the Lord, then it is implied, biblically speaking, it is implied that you obey him also. If you say you love the Lord, then it is an absolute implication that you also obey him. So here's the follow-up question. Do you obey him perfectly? Does anybody want to raise a hand on that one? I don't. No. We don't. So, But you're the ones who said you love and trust him. The Bible says if you love him, you'll obey. And you just said, no, I don't, I don't obey him perfectly. No one does. No one does. So then is it fair to say that we don't love him perfectly either? Since we don't obey him perfectly, is it fair to say we don't love him perfectly? Yeah. And if this conclusion is true, it is, then doesn't that mean we all have imperfect love for the Lord and others and even ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. If we have to concede that we don't obey Him perfectly, He is the wellspring of love. The Bible says God is love. We don't obey Him, we don't love Him perfectly. So to whatever degree that happens, we are outside of this sphere of love that the Spirit's been bringing from this pulpit now for years. The idea of being in the sphere of love experientially. So again, doesn't this mean we all have, if we all have imperfect love, then we have imperfect love not just for the Lord, but for others and even ourselves I mean, if we're not 100% in the sphere of love, experientially speaking, then some degree of our existence is outside of it. Is that fair enough? Yeah. Here's a friendly reminder from a few months back, up here on the board, on the sphere of love and obedience. These are not my words. I'm not trying to postulate anything that's not godly, it's not true, it's not from the Word of God. These are the words of Jesus. So if we're going to take anyone's counsel and listen to anyone's words, it should be his. John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. End of story. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That was that sort of intrinsic tying of these two concepts together, love and obedience. They come together in the same sphere, if you would. If you love me, you keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. In other words, I'm the perfect prototype. I was perfectly obedient, and I had perfect love. You are somewhere removed from that, being imperfect. So we have to concede these things. So when we say we love and trust the Lord, 
There really is sort of an asterisk there. There has to be some acceptance of reality because we're flawed. Abiding in the sphere of love implies something critical to this morning's study. So listen up, please. To love is to trust. I mean, minimally, you have to believe that love exists. Minimally, you have to believe that love even exists. For some of us, that in of itself is a long road because of the way we were brought up. Some of us were brought up neglected, abused, all kinds of things. The people that were supposed to show us love, supposed to teach us love, didn't do either. Didn't do any of it. So we have to learn that love actually exists minimally. To love is to trust. Truth is the anchor of love and therefore trust. Lies destroy it. Truth is the anchor. Lies destroy it. Truth is the anchor of love and trust. Lies destroy it. Let's do some investigating now. Jesus is described in the Bible as full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14 up here on the board. I want you to synthesize with John 1.14. It says Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. Synthesize that with these three passages. John 8.32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And then Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Conclusion, and you can work this out uh, in your own time as well. This afternoon, maybe you take a little walk at Colt State, stare out at the water, think about some of this stuff. The conclusion, though, is that Jesus wants you to trust him. He wants you to trust him. Trust his love for you. Not just say that you accept his love because you understand all the grace he's poured out on your lap. Let me say this again. The conclusion is Jesus wants you to trust him. Trust his love for you. Not just say, you know, not just utter vapid words. Not just say without any accountability. Is that fair to say at the, when I first hooked you into this conversation? Do you trust, do you love and trust Jesus? And everybody's like, yay. Is it fair to say there's a certain vapidness, an emptiness, like just sort of a proclamation there? I think so. And I think that's what the Spirit's really getting at. He doesn't want you just to say such things. Say that you accept His love because you understand all the grace He's poured out on your lap. In other words, it's not just some formulaic result. Keep thinking about the verses on the board. Again, John 8.32, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. 
Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I mean, Jesus had a purpose. He had a purpose for going to the cross. There's a reason why his spirit authored this book for us. He wants you to know the truth, and he wants you to trust him. He wants you to fall head over heels in love with him as a priority, as your number one best friend, the love of your life. Forget all the romance novels with Fabio with the long hair. And I don't even care if you're married. That's not the love of your life. You're not even going to be married in heaven. The love of your life is Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants you to know. You're betrothed to him. Amen? Yeah. Doesn't that kind of just go, oh, okay. You mean I can drop all the expectations on my spouse? Yeah. You can drop all those expectations. They're not even fair anyways. They're just clay feet. Because we all fail. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He wants you to know these things. He wants you to know how he sought you out, how you were personally on his mind when he hung on the cross. Compare our conclusion from this exercise with, go to uh, Luke 14.26. Luke 14.26. Luke 14, 26. Compare all that with Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, now remember that's another relative term. In other words, relatively speaking, you love him so much that by comparison, you hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. That's his goal for you. He wants you to love him to the degree, by comparison, you hate the, the people that you actually love in your life. So if anyone comes to me and does not have this, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What's the Spirit trying to convey to us this morning? Simple. He wants all of you. He wants all of you. He wants you to be all in. Nothing less. Words. Like we all agreed to. Yeah, I love and trust the Lord. Words are not enough for Him. Just like you could argue in our earthly relationships, words aren't enough. The, word, the three words, I love you, probably gets thrown out way more often than it ought to. People say that. People even take vows without any real intention because the words are vapid. They're not true. They're not matured. He wants all of you. He wants you to be all in, nothing less. Words are not enough for him. He wants your heart, your soul, and all your might. Here we go again. 
I don't know what he's, I think I could need to stop prefacing every time I have to share something personal because I think he like needles me with it. He's like, oh, you don't like when you have to do something personal, huh? Do it again. <laughs> oh, you don't like that? Well, stop talking about it. Just do it again then. So this is, I'm going to try. This is going to be the last time. Anyways, I'm going to share something really intimate, a real intimate detail about myself that you might find either strange or maybe even shocking. But I'm hoping in some small way you can relate. That's the point. So please don't focus on me. Just try to relate to what I'm saying. There are times I don't want to read my Bible because some of you are like, never listen to you again. You when you read the Bible with the exclamation points, with the big orange slides. (laughs) You told me to imitate your faith. Mimeo, remember Mimeo, Mimeograph, like Mimeograph. Let me finish. Diane, let me finish. <laughs> there are times I don't want to read my Bible because of the pain it causes me. Over this past year, I've had this conversation a lot with the Lord on this very topic. A lot. I know that everything I need to know about life itself is in the Bible. And yet, there are times that I just don't want to open it up. I play this little dance sometimes, because my place of reading my Bible is my recliner with my little coffee thing there, and and I open up my Kindle and I read it, and I kind of like walk up to the recliner and look at it, and like, this is going to hurt. If I sit down and start reading, it's going to hurt. I'm going to be in pain. So, the truth in the Bible represents a certain kind of pain. So, while there's so much rejoicing that is done when we read the Bible, I'm not discounting that, there's also a lot of painful realizations that hit me like a ton of bricks when I read it. I understand at the end of the day that God's in control and I've got nothing to really worry about. That's not the issue. The issue is that I see a perfect standard. When I read the Bible, I see the perfect standard of the holy, sovereign God of the universe. That's what I see in the pages of the Bible. And then I think, how could I not? I'm living in this body. Then I think, about the total depravity of man. And when those two things are juxtaposed, if they're side by side, it's painful. I read about the perfect standard, and then I think about the total depravity of man, and I just want to, like, break down. It's too big. I'm almost going to do it right now. The, The chasm is just too big. So it's painful. So I feel a lot like Peter when he first became acquainted with Jesus. Go to Luke 5.3. Luke 
<clears throat> Luke 5.3. And he, Jesus, got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night. Here comes the human side, right? The human viewpoint. We worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they said, excuse me, they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But Simon Peter saw that. When he saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Do you see that? You've got the perfect standard in the flesh who just proves something to Simon. Simon realizes this, and what's his response? It's the same kind of response whew, that I have. When I look at my recliner sometimes, I go, I can't go there right now. Maybe my mentality is a little off. Maybe I'm thinking of a lot of you. Maybe it's just the depravity of man has got its grips on me, just the thinking of it. And to be in the presence of the Lord that way, that close to the divine standard, it's agonizing. That's what you see with Simon Peter. He had no other thing. He said, I'm just going to fall down at your feet and say, I'm not even worthy to be here in your presence. So in the presence of the Lord of grace and truth, there exists a certain pain. So this is how I often feel when I read the Bible. There's always pain present. And for the record, just so you have the complete picture, much of the pain is not due to my own malignancy with the truth, but rather all of yours too. And, frankly, the whole world's, for that matter. So I ache at the simple fact that we humans are so vile, ungrateful, and sinful. Is it fair to say we're repulsive creatures? Uh, it's just awful. The more I know and love the Lord, the more ashamed I am of humanity. In an intimate microcosm 2,000 years ago, Peter suffered the same realization. The same one the tax collector did. Remember, he beat his chest. Be merciful to me, the sinner. The thief on the cross, remember me. And Mary Magdalene, etc., etc. All these people were slammed against the manifestation, the incarnation of grace and truth, the divine standard. Verse 8 again. So it makes sense that Peter would do this thing. And for some of you, I hope you're relating, for some of you, you know exactly what I've been trying to describe in my own experience, that when you come up upon the divine standard, it's humbling, to say the least. But when Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, 
for I am a sinful man. The truth is light. And if we stand naked in the light, well, let's just say, I actually have this hyphenated in my notes, UG-LY. We are ugly. Can I get an amen? It's true. We're ugly. If we stand directly in the, in the light, we're ugly. When you open your Bible, when you read the word of truth, the word of light, Jesus is light, you're, you're presented with light, and you, you, you have to submit to the light. You have to walk experientially into that light. And it's painful. Because when you're in the shadows, you don't see all the warts and the scars and the ugliness and the, the vileness and the disgustingness and the grotesqueness of your sinful living. But when you walk directly into the light, in other words, when you open up the word of truth, you see, you stand naked. And if you're humble, it's bothersome. It's painful. But here's the beauty of God's plan. The pain, this pain, has a use to it. Has a use to it. It leads us to the same feeling Peter had, to the same place Peter was when Jesus asked if he was going to leave him too up here on the board. Remember this from last week? Remember when Jesus was teaching and he, he put a challenge out there to, the, to his so-called disciples, a larger audience, and many of them left? Because why? People don't want to stand in the light. They don't want someone to say, look at you. You're a mess. You're totally depraved. Which is why a lot of people prefer religion. Because religion lies to you and says, eh, you're good enough. I think when God weighs the scales, you'll get into heaven because, you know, you've been good enough. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Nobody's good enough. We make it to heaven on the merits of Christ alone. That's it. Up here on the board, again, Jesus, after he asked, and people had left, asked Peter, who was standing there. Simon Peter answered and said, John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? Okay, I'm standing here naked. It's obvious. It's the same person who got down on his knees in the boat. Where am I going to go after you? Yeah, this is painful. This is painful. But I need it. I need the truth because it's the truth that sets me free. It's painful, but I need it. And so the pain brings you somewhere. The pain disallows us from deceiving ourselves. Is it painful to hear you're a moron? Because you are. Because you're just dumb sheep. Is that painful for you to hear? 
For some of you, yeah, depending on how spiky your arrogance is right now. But you know what? There's a use to it. The humble person says, oh, oh, that's, I am. And the Lord says, now I have something to work with. If you think you're up here, I've got to bring you low. That's why I have under-shepherds to do that thing. Where am I going to go? It's painful, but where am I going to go? I have that same conversation with my chair. Well, I don't, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Tammy gets up and goes back to bed. It's like, ooh, go sleep an extra half an hour. Where am I going to go? <laughs> but it's true. You know, I do that like semicircle around it. You know what I'm saying? I kind of like, uh, I don't really know if I want, I'm up for it now. Then I go in my office. I'm like, what am I going to do in here? Seriously, what am I going to do in here? So I kind of meander around, go in the kitchen, drink some water. I know where I have to go. You know where you have to go. You have to go to the truth, naked. And it's going to cause you some pain. But that pain has use. Again, such painful realizations about ourselves and man's depravity in general lead us back to him, if we're humble. You still in Luke 5.9? All right, let's read that. Luke 5.9 for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So you see where Peter had to go first? Peter doubted. Christ proved and then there was some painful realization of what ended up happening. He followed him. Where else are you going to go? You read the Bible. You stand naked. Do you run away? Where else are you going to go? All right, let's get back to our main... Keep, an, keep a, your mind's eye on that as we get back to our mainstream thoughts from earlier. Remember, there's a challenge on the table up here on the board. Say what you mean, mean what you say. For words to have meaning, they must be true. So we say we love and trust the Lord, but we really don't want to stand directly in the light, at least not always. Is that fair? Yeah, it's painful. But where else are we going to go? The fact is that Jesus is the best friend we'll ever have. So we can trust him to be honest with us. However, in practical terms, people don't want trustworthy friends. People don't let me put a qualifier in that. People don't always want trustworthy friends, probably because of the pain. Well, here's something from Holy Scripture. Titus 1-2, God cannot lie. So we will always get the absolute truth, whether it stings or not, from God. What we want from God 
sometimes, is something that is impossible for him. It's something that's impossible for him. He's never going to lie to us. He's never going to ease that pain artificially so that it makes it easier for us to kind of squirm out from underneath the weightiness of that situation. That's not how he is. But sometimes we want him to do that thing, which is why if you're in your prayer life, you might be praying for something, you know, the relief of something, that he's actually got in place to help you out. And so he doesn't answer that prayer because it's an ungodly request. He wants you to know the truth about yourself. He wants you to go through that pain. He wants you to realize how depraved you are. Because that pain, that process, has an end result. It brings you to Him, to the truth. So, in our quest for relief from our nakedness and shame, what do we do? Let's be honest. What do we do? Anybody any want to say they were a perfect saint this week? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's ridiculous, right? I can't even sit in my recliner. I think that qualifies as disqualifies me. What do we do when we want relief, you know? What do we do? We seek out those who willingly, okay, God cannot lie. So our options are dead in the water, right? Pain's hurting right now. What do we do? We willingly seek out people. Or we seek out those who are willingly are willing to lie to us. We go like this. We go, ow! Hey, you want to go out? Hey, you want to hang? Jesus is like, what's wrong with me? We were just hanging. What happened? Closed them up and called up somebody else who's willing to lie to you. And then here's the kicker. We call those people friends. We call those people, the ones that are willingly lying to us, we call them friends. What's wrong with this picture? On the one hand, we have 24 by 7 access to the greatest friend we'll ever know. But instead, we turn our backs on him and seek out wretched creatures to soothe our bruised egos. Yeah, that's what we do. Yuck. So, the truth is up here on the board. People would rather have friends that lie to them. true. Let's just live in this little uh, economy. I lie to you, you lie to me. Then we don't have to live in this pain, this so-called pain. You know, the one that eventually delivers you, but that's beside the point. We can, we can skirt the pain of nakedness in the light, of truth in the light. People would rather have friends that lie to them. If you missed all the Spirit had to say on this topic, watch Thursday's message online. i got to move on up here on the board. Regarding trustworthy friends, not only are they rare, they aren't in very high demand. 
They're not in very high demand. Consider that Jesus was the most trustworthy person of all, and the majority rejected him, and then they murdered him. I wrote this week's, this week's blog titled, Two Ways of Approaching the Truth, to address the same truth, if you would. Two ways of approaching the truth. So let's reflect on this. When we approach the truth, for example, read our Bible. When we read our Bible, when we approach the truth, we must do so in faith and trust. Faith and trust. Without trust leading the way, it's too easy to reject what we find. In other words, if I don't trust in the process, if I don't trust in the author, it's too easy to reject it. When Jesus said, seek and you shall find, he meant in earnest. Seek earnestly, in humility. Ready? Here's the key word. Accepting whatever is true. Don't go there with some weird, perverted agenda. Like, if I like what I read, I'll accept it. If I don't, I'll close the book and call my friend someone who's willing to lie to me. That's not obedience at all. That's called cherry-picking. That's not what obedience even looks like. That's self-serving. Obedience means going in the 100%. I'm, whatever I find here, because it's in the Word of God, because it's from God who cannot lie, I'm going to accept it. I have to accept it. It's going to hurt. I got to sit in the recliner. It's going to be painful. But I got to go through this thing because I trust what he says. I trust that the truth will set me free. I trust that he's my best friend and he actually truly loves me. He proved that on the cross, didn't he? John 3.16. He proved that on the cross. We have no reason to doubt him whatsoever. So when Jesus said, seek and you shall find, he meant in earnest, in humility, accepting whatever is true. So we must trust, in other words, have faith, that whatever is revealed to us has real worth by God's scale of values. Up here on the board, trust, also known as faith, it's a counterfeit quest for truth if you reserve the right to reject it once you find it. You're a phony going in. You're a pretender going in. Maybe you showed up naked, but you had a little Samsonite. And as soon as you saw all the warts and the scars and the depravity, you went, whoa! Put on like a tunic or something, or a toga. People wear togas anymore? They're like ancient Greece. You know what I mean. Whatever you people wear. Moomoos? What do you wear? I don't know what you wear. Onesies? <laughs> it's a counterfeit quest for truth if you reserve the right to reject it once you find it. A good friend always tells the truth. 
Friendship is something Christ has already shown us. He said, come with me and I will show you what real peace is. But you've got to follow me, and I am the very fullness of grace and truth. So I'm not going to lie to you. It might be painful, but come with me and I will show you what real peace is. Not all the counterfeits, not all the Chinese food meals from the religions out there, and the self-help books, and the things that satisfy you for a moment, and your little phone calls to your little disgusting friends, the ones who lie to you, who could care less about Jesus Christ. And you know, you're living the little dipsukos life, the little double life that no one else knows about, God does. You know, you make your little phone calls and your little connections with your apps, with all your disgusting friends, and you do all kinds of vile things with people you call friends who really lie to you, who are liars, who usher you firsthand, hand in hand, away from the sphere of love and grace and truth, back to misery. What the hell kind of friend is that? Who says, hey, grab my hand. But they have long eyelashes. Yeah, I get it. Grab my hand. I will usher you out of truth, away from the truth, back to misery. You tell me what kind of friend that is. Meanwhile, we have the best friend who says, I want to give you my peace. My peace I give to you. What kind of friend is that that takes you away from him? That's why you don't, honestly, folks, especially you single people, you can't be cavorting with, with, with unbelievers or people that's, you know, false professors of the faith. People that could care less about Jesus Christ because they have no use to Him. They're taking you away from the truth. They're literally designed. Of course, they're disguised as angels of light, disguised as friends, but they're actually dragging you away. So Jesus said, come with me and I will show you what real peace is. That's what an in, a real invitation to be friends looks like. Go to John 15, 9. John 15, verse 9. When he said all that, that was an invitation to be friends with him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that the perfect man said, let's be friends. I'll show you what real peace looks like. I will usher you into the sphere of love. <clears throat> John 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. In other words, we have an intimacy here, so I call you friend. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name 
he may give to you this, I command you that you love one another. There's more to it than that. That's his way of saying, remain in the sphere of love. You don't have to worry about, oh God, now I've got to love him, and now I've got to love her, and now I gotta, as if it's just a one-way activity, that's this thing. If you abide in the sphere of love, that's who you are. That's who you are. You become that. You don't have to cherry-pick. What did Jesus Christ say about friends and enemies? What do you say about your enemies especially? Love them. So you see, you don't have to like cherry pick. Oh, I guess I'll love this and I'll love that one. No. You abide in the sphere of his love, and there you are. You love one another. You see? It builds an economy. A true friend invites you into the sphere of their personal love. It's an intimate place to be, given the inherent vulnerability in it. Again, it's an intimate place to be, given the inherent vulnerability in it. Even so, we've been invited. I'll give you the sort of the capstone up here on the board. This is all from what we just read. I'm just shrinking it. The sphere of love, John 15, 9 to 17. Abide in my love, he said. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. But I have called you friends. And this I command you, that you love one another. All of that is a, is a good picture of what it means to be in the sphere of his love. He describes it there as abide in my love. Some of you are miserable as I speak because this is foreign to you. The only kind of love you've known is some kind of transactional love. Well, obviously they love me because they just gave me 10 bucks. Or obviously they love me because they said they loved me and then they had sex with me. Obviously they love me because it's always this transactional thing. Do you understand? That's not real love. Love is something that becomes you. That's why he says, abide in my love. I want you to enter into my peace. How's that transactional? It's really not. It's an estate. He says, I'm going to bring you, while all your bad friends, the ones that lie to you, are trying to drag you this way, he's trying to bring you this way. I want to bring you, usher you into my peace. That's where love is. How do you get there? I command you. That's the obedience part. He's here and he says, just like this. You remember when you were a kid and your mother went like this? You're like, oh, no. Right? That was a command, not even a spoken word, right? Oh, no. And you're like this. Think you could dodge it? Do the MC Hammer, right? Oh, you're definitely talking to my brother, right? Because he's a punk. Me? Look at me. You know? That's what he's doing. I command you. That's the obedience part. You see, that's very different, is it? Wait, 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 wait. Let me back up here. You mean... I don't, I don't need to be like an adolescent brat. You mean his commands are actually good for me? Yes. That's the mindset change. Don't you tell me what to do. His commands are good for us. That's why obedience is part of the sphere. Come join me. You have an invitation. Get over here. When the perfect man says, get over here, it's a command. 
Does that make sense? It's not like that response we had when we were kids. Get over here. You're like, Mm-mm. I'm going to get a whipping. I'm going to get in trouble. I ain't going over there. Get over here. And it's a command. You have that angst of the adolescent, you know what I'm saying, that knee-jerk reaction. Uh-uh, that's all wrong. Satan would want you to think that way about the Bible and the commands in the Bible because that's how he lies to you and deceives you and gets you not to read your Bible. When you understand what real commands look like, and it's out of love that they're even given, they paint the way, they light the path to his peace, then you respect his commands. You want to obey his commands. You open your Bible and go, where are the commands? Because I'm over here in the, in, the, in the woods, I'm lost. How do I get out of here? Commands become like a compass. How do I get away from this situation I'm in? Commands are beautiful. You learn to relish them. You learn to look for them in the Bible. I would argue, and you could disagree, just my experience, most so-called Christians hate commands because they're still religious. They, they have a tally going like this, right? Like, okay, there's ten commands over here. I'm going to do five of them. No, six, because then six is more than four, and I get into heaven. They're on a works program. They think commands is about pleasing God. God's like, you got this all wrong. I gave you the commands to light the way to peace on earth in your soul so you can be delivered. It's why I went to the cross, Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that I set you free. Not so you go back to bondage, so you can enjoy my gift. That's what commandments are. They're not hammers. They're lights. Learn to love them. That's the sphere of love. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. But I have called you friends. This I command you that you love one another. In other words, stay there. Stay there. Love one another. Stay there. Do you see the intrinsic nature of loving one another? You can't, you can't get out of it now. You love one another, you're in there. He also says, do not love the world or the things in it. Why? Because that's what ejects you out of it. Because the world's over here with its lies and its misery. He says, do not love that thing. That's why we're actually called to be friends with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. It should be our preference to spend our time, our fellowship. What fellowship has a believer with Belial, as the Bible says? None. We're meant to fellowship with each other. That's going to be this afternoon at the park. We're going to rejoice over people getting baptized, and then we're going to go eat. And I'm going to help you eat your food. Because that's the kind of guy I am. What? For you. So you don't eat it. I see the kind of unhealthy food you guys bring. <laughs> the sphere of love, I hope you can see it. This sphere of love that Jesus has invited you into, it's not a scary place, and nor is the pathway to it. It might be filled with some pain, but that's good, because the pain has a use. 
the sphere of love that Jesus has invited you into, it's not a scary place. It's just brutally open, honest, and naked. That's it. Brutally honest, open, and naked. That's why if you're, the, if you're a brutally honest person, chances are you're not going to have many friends. Why is Tammy laughing? Because she's seen it for over a quarter of a century. If you're totally honest with people, they don't really want to hang around with you. Because the truth hurts. And most people want others to lie to them. What was the last command we just read? It's up there on the board. This I command that you love one another. If I lie to you, is that love? No. That's literally hatred. So the truth is just, the sphere of love is just brutally open, honest, and naked. But here's, and I think I've got to close here. If, if the sphere of love is brutally open, honest, and naked, isn't that what makes true love so grand? Isn't that the best feeling in the world? And I'm not, I, you, can, you can think literally or figuratively. Don't do it with me because it might make you sick. But when you're in a situation where you can stand totally naked in front of someone without any real shame, just here I am. Isn't that what makes true love so grand? This is who I am. And the other person says, I love you. Isn't that what makes true love so grand? Brutal, open, honest nakedness? Yeah, that's exactly what makes true love so grand. I don't have to hide. I don't have to be someone I'm not supposed to be. Or God didn't want me to be. The Bible says you were wonderfully made. Jesus knew about your so-called conditions when he died on the cross for you. And he said, fine, I still invite you in. I just want you to stand here open, honest, and naked before me, before the truth, before the light, because I'm going to shine on you. I'm going to see it, and you're going to see it. But I'm telling you, I already know. I knew about your warts before you did. I already know. But stand there. It might be painful, but that's just your flesh writhing. So in closing, you might rightly ask yourself, then what is my problem? What's my problem then? And I'll challenge you with this. The answer traces all the way back to the Garden of Eden at the fall when Adam and Eve saw each other and were, anybody know? Ashamed. What happened? They were abiding in the perfect sphere of love. No problems. Gallivanting around, buck naked. Sin comes on the scene. Guess what? Now they're ashamed. What just happened? So any shame you have, being naked and such, you can trace it all the way back to original sin. Imagine that. 
Imagine there's nothing new under the sun. Imagine Solomon was actually sort of wise when he wrote that. There's nothing new under the sun. We've been struggling with the same stuff since the dawn of mankind. The problem with us. I think I'm going to leave you with that as a nice little challenge. Go ahead in your mind. Think about that. And think about how standing before anyone brutally open, honest, and naked would cause you anything but to give and receive love. Why that would cause any shame in you. And then trace it all the way back to the garden. Um, just remember that shame is a result of the fall, part of the curse. It didn't exist prior. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for always giving us truth because the truth sets us free. Thank you for allowing us to feel pain because we know that you have a divine good use for it. We just ask for the strength and the humility to pass through those times where that pain is excruciating through self-evidence or even evidenced in others, Father. We just thank you for your deliverance along the way and your patience with us with all of this. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes, back to the beach during the baptism today and during the fellowship afterwards. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.